First John chapter one, verse one. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life and the life was manifested. And we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. And father, we do thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that you would help us now. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. Amen. That was a good one. I like that. I love little kids saying amen. Um, when I was a SEAL instructor, well, as a student, it happened to me too, but it was far more enjoyable as an instructor. Before long swims, anytime there was an ocean swim, especially at night, we would pull all of the students together and we would show special videos, namely National Geographic Shark Week. We would go over all of the, the what sharks were doing in the ocean these days. And we would, you know, often before swims, I would Google uh, shark attacks that were happening around the world. And I would brief them the safety of the swim. And then I'd go through and I'd read uh, articles just related to people who had been attacked and killed by sharks as as a way of letting them know that when they entered into the beautiful ocean, they were just becoming a small piece in the food chain. And, and it was, as a student, it's horrified because as you're walking into this ocean, which always seems so beautiful to me before I was a SEAL student, suddenly I became aware of that there's really big stuff in there. And it kind of horrified me. This, this continued on in the teams, this skyline of San Diego, which people travel from around the world to vacation in San Diego to look at the skyline of the beautiful city, the water. But then when you dive in it, suddenly the bay, when I look at it today, it has a whole different perspective. It's not this glossy piece of black water at night when you can see the beautiful light to the skyline. There's stuff in there that's big. And it's even worse when you're about to jump in and they say, oh, yeah, by the way, uh, they're going to be working with the mammals tonight. So just uh, just be aware of that. When they say that, that means that there's going to be dolphins trying to attack you that you cannot get away from. And the reason I bring this up is because first John is one of these letters that at first glance seems really simple. The the vocabulary, the language of it itself is super easy in, in Greek. This this letter, first year Greek students in seminary, this is often the letter that is that is translated because the the actual the words are simple. There's not that many uh, usages of the words, and so you can translate it. But then as you start looking at it, it's terribly complex, and there's there's difficulties and there's. Just depth that John is writing with. Uh, Last week we reviewed that the Apostle John, he was, during Jesus' earthly ministry, he was the youngest of all the apostles. He was uh, like Jesus' kid brother. Jesus spoke with him with affection, named him the sons of, he had a brother, but they were referred to as the sons of, of thunder. And 
And they spoke in, with an elitist tone and would pray prayers of like, hey, can we just wipe out the Samaritans? Jesus, we saw these other people doing stuff, healing people in your name, but they're not a part of our club. So I tried to break them up and rebuke them over the things that they were doing. But then over the course of his life, as Jesus ministered to young John, John's life began to change. He, Jesus' death, burial, resurrection happened at the cross John was the only one at the crucifixion. He was given Mary to take care of. And tradition holds that he cared for Mary until the end of his life. And he watched during that period, all of his brothers, all of the other disciples and apostles, they were all executed for their proclamation of Christ, yet he remained. After Nero went on, the next, the next Caesar came up and didn't like John. He was now becoming an elderly man. And he had a huge following and they proclaimed another Caesar, this Jesus, who apparently lived. And so he believed that he would just get rid of John. And so he boiled him in a vat of oil, but he survived. And this, this created a whole lot of anxiety for this Caesar because they were so superstitious that this guy lived so he didn't know what to do. And so he had him exiled. And so if we could turn to the map just to kind of give you guys a geographic orientation. Over here is Israel. So John remained in Jerusalem till AD 70, uh, 40 years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Nero destroyed Jerusalem. Uh, Mary died sometime before that. And then John basically made his way up uh, to modern-day Turkey in the, the town of Ephesus. In Ephesus is where he penned the Gospel of John, most believe that he was probably in his 90s that he was when he wrote um, the Gospel of John. And then he wrote 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John from Ephesus. And then he was exiled to this rocky island of Patmos where he received the revelation of Christ. And he penned revelation for us. So we can go back. And so as this letter opens up in my study this week, I... I started to get concerned about this choice. <laughs> the first thing is some guy, some people I go to on a regular basis who are able to explain the Bible in ways that are simple. Charles Swindoll is one. And Charles Swindoll, his first line about this book was, there's a reason that I did not preach through this book until after I've been preaching for 45 years because my mama didn't raise no dummy. That's his words. And I'm like, oh, no, I'm in so much trouble. <laughs> I start looking at this. And the first three verses are one sentence in the Greek. John Stott says this. All commentators have found this first paragraph involved in syntax and abstruse. It's a difficult word. I had to look it up. And then I laughed at the definition of it, because it simply means difficult to understand. I thought that's some, some wordsmith wanted to be silly. So you make a difficult word that means it's a difficult word. It's involved in syntax and abstruse in the meaning. It is, in fact, a grammatical tangle. We must try to disentangle it. The main verb, which does not occur until verse 3, shows that the process is concerned essentially with the apostolic proclamation of the gospel, what, it, what, it, what, what is, was, and why it was made. Okay, that sentence is t totally, that was a 
most simple explanation I could hear of this first three verses. And so you, you work through this and you start seeing certain things kind of come at you. The second verse is, is like a, a parenthesis of this whole statement. But then as we work through, things start to come into light. Really, from the opening, John begins to address one of the problems. It's subtle. See, one of the problems that John addresses here, if the first letter or his first gospel, his gospel, not his first gospel, the gospel of John, we know that was written so that people would become believers. This letter is to help grow and mature believers in their walk, to give them assurance Because the Gnostics had come in to say that Jesus couldn't really be known. He wasn't truly in the flesh. He was merely spirit. When he walked down the beach, he didn't leave footsteps. And so John begins this letter. What was from the beginning? Now, this sounds familiar. If we read the Gospel of John, we'll see the same sort of phrasing. Very similar. But if you'll turn back with me to go to Genesis 1. And in Genesis 1, it's right before Exodus. That helps. <laughs> you know, first book of the Bible, you always want to know. <laughs> <It's>, <clears throat> so the Bible begins with, in the beginning. Now to stop here. So in the beginning, this, this state, the creation hasn't happened yet. So in the beginning... In that period, then God created the heavens and the earth. The heaven, the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. So the Bible starts out with, with the historical account of creation. But, but before that, God existed. And this is something that's terribly difficult for, for our minds to, to comprehend. The we finite beings to understand this infinite creator that if we would march back in history and get right down to the very first day of creation, we would leap off into eternity. And my brain seizes at that point. But before creation, before time started, God always was. And so from Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens of the earth. We go from there to John, the first letter of John. And John, his first writing, this is how he begins. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. Apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. So John begins his letter with this great picture in the beginning. Back before creation, Jesus was there. And not only was he there, but he was intimately involved in all aspects of creation, as Colossians tells us so clearly. If we march down the page to verse 14, we read, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory as of the only begotten from the father full of grace and truth moving down to verse 18 no one has seen god at any time the 
only begotten God who was in the bosom of the father. He has explained him. And so John begins his writing. He said, you go all the way back to eternity or all the way back to day one of creation. And you jump off the page into eternity. You'll find Jesus there. He always was. See, at his incarnation or his birth, as we get near to Christmas and we celebrate the birth of Jesus, so often we confuse the birth of Jesus with thinking that that's when Jesus came into existence. No, Jesus always existed in eternity past. His incarnation, he went from God in the eternity not being seen to being manifested to us. He came through the birth of through birth as he as he took on flesh and i love this verse 18 of john he says no one has seen god at any time because god is spirit the only begotten god jesus who was in the bosom of the father he explained him so as he took on flesh the the best picture for us to see and to comprehend what god is like is to look at this this picture of jesus he explained him to us. And so John's done this work as we, as we get to First John. Now we're going back to our book. And he says, what was from the beginning? What we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands. These statements are going to kind of be reiterated a couple times in these opening clauses, these opening phrases. But the first thing that jumps out to me Is this we? Who's the we? John is writing. But I believe as he writes the we, he's talking on behalf of all of the apostles, all of them who had gone to be with the Lord at this point. But he their testimony remains true. He says what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at. And touched with our hands. Now, I don't want to lose a, a lot of you, but for, you know, Abigail, who likes grammar. And I do like it. I just am not very good at it. It's fascinating the tense that's used in the Greek. In the Greek, he begins to argue his point of the Gnostics. See, these first two, he says, what we have heard and what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at. These three terms, these participles, they're in the perfect tense. Now, the perfect tense, what that means is something happened in time, back in history. But at the, at the, at the time of writing for John, he's more concerned with the implications that it's had in his life. And so as a 90-year-old man, as he writes about what he'd heard, what he'd seen, what he has looked at, those have lasting impacts in his life. That, it, that his, in, his touch with Jesus was as real for him at 90 years of age as it was when he was in his teens walking with Jesus. What we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, and what we have looked at, seen and looked at, and seen what these are... These seem to be the same things. But the word looked at, this is where we get theater from. This is to truly to examine something. It's not like you just walk down, walking around and go, I think I saw something. I, I thought I saw something, but I wasn't really paying attention. 
This is when you go to the grocery store and you're looking at your fruit and you're picking it up and examining it and, you know, touching it, hitting it. I don't, how do you tell if a watermelon's ripe? I, I tap it all the time, but I don't know what I'm listening for. But, but this is what looking at it is. He, he didn't just casually come across Jesus. He, he walked with him for three years as the Gospels record. It's possible many believe that Jesus was actually John's first cousin. Certainly Galilee was a small area and they, they, they knew each other. But he examined him. And then he goes on to what we have looked at and touched with our hands. Now, when he uses this word touched, he changes. He goes to the aorist, which is fascinating, but not for you. I mean, most people don't care. But if aorist tense, it's not concerned with the action. It's literally as you look at the course of history, it would be like you pulled out your camera and you took a picture. Where the perfect is more like a video, like you kind of watch the things unfold. But, but going back, he just talks about when we touched him, snapshot. It's more concerned about the historical event. And what he's battling with is these Gnostics who are telling the believers, Jesus didn't really exist. He, came, he was spirit. He, he, he didn't take on bodily form. But when he gets to touch, he says, it happened. I touched him. In fact, the word Touch is groped. It's, it's what you would use to describe a blind person and their use of their hands and feeling things. There's a blind girl who comes to church on Fridays to help clean. They do sort of occupational therapy. And the first time, the first time I like encountered her, she, she like grabbed my hands and started feeling. And she, she's blind and she's deaf. And she has a hard time communicating. But she was trying to ask my permission if she could touch my face. And then when I kind of somehow expressed to her that it was okay, I grabbed her hand and I put it on my face. It was like she got super excited. I mean, it was like she couldn't even control herself. Just touch it. I don't, you know, I don't get that reaction from girls really, you know. But man, when she, like when she felt my face, it was like. She was so happy because now she could see me. It was funny at the men's retreat, I brought this up and I went down and I groped a guy's face and he's like, man, that was really weird. I'm like, yeah. So I noticed nobody's sitting close enough for me to really demonstrate this. <laughs> Both Ricks are pointing at each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like, let's move on. But so he, he'd, he heard. What we've seen with our eyes, what we have looked at, intensifying this, this, this scene. Not only, we didn't just see, but we looked, we examined. We groped him with our hands concerning the word of life, speaking of Christ. John's going to use three. I'm probably getting ahead of myself, or maybe I just need to turn my page here. He's going to use three word pictures describing Jesus. There's the word of life that when you want to know what life is, it's Christ in the next verse, verse two, which is a sort of a parenthetical statement. That's that he's just kind of doubly making his point. He describes this life very specifically, a, a restrictive sort of uh, I think it's a clause is what they call it. That as he's describing life, it's a specific type of life and it's life eternal. 
So that when you go back to creation, back to day one, and you jump off into eternity past, there was a life there. A life that would always exist in eternity past will always exist in eternity future. This life is Christ. He will also, in verse 5, we'll see the second picture that he uses to, to describe who Jesus is. Or who God is. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light. All through this letter, we're going to see these extreme contrasts between light and darkness. But God is light. In him, there's nothing bad. And in 1 John 4, 8, we see God is love. These are the three pictures that he uses to describe himself. So he's heard, he's seen, he's touched, and it's beautiful, this touching. What did they do after the resurrection when Jesus appeared? They touched him. And who wasn't there? Thomas. And they told Thomas, and he says, unless I touch him with my hands, I won't believe. And we give Thomas such a bad rap. Every one of us would have been in his shoes. He's alive, then where is he? Let me touch him. And in John 20, 19 through 31, that's the, the very end of his last gospel. Jesus says, or John records the story of Thomas touching and feeling him and coming to belief. And he says, how blessed are those who believe without seeing. And so we see these three pictures concerning the word of life. The, the, what, what has he heard? What has he seen? What has he looked at? What has he groped? The word of life. And he goes on to say, and this life was manifested. Another phrase that's, that's very unique to John's gospel and his writing. It's, it's something that was unseen, that's suddenly seen. And it's not a deceptive sort of manifestation. It's a, it's a manifestation of something that's true. It wouldn't be a manifestation if you had a costume party. Like on Halloween, how we're doing a Keith Green dress-up party. I really need to get going on my outfit. I need to find some good 70s and 80s clothes. I'm looking for a turtleneck, so keep me, you know, you know, let me know if you know where I can get one. But if I came up in the best Keith Green outfit, that's not a true manifestation. That would be, it's a false manifestation. Jesus manifesting in the flesh, it was a true representation. It was the unseen God becoming seen for all to see. And we have seen and we testify. I think it's hilarious that I begin this. And two Wednesdays ago, ten days ago, I'm in Bible study and Rick's teaching and my phone, I get a text. And then my mind is going crazy, going, I got to get out of this Bible study. I got to figure out what's going on. The number three person at the Escondido Police Department texts me and says, you've been subpoenaed to court. Ah! <laughs> what I do <laughs> like and so Rick's teaching I'm trying to text the guy back what happened what and he's like well you are a witness of an event and you need it you need to go to court and it's no big deal trust me it's not a big deal I'm like yeah easy for you to say and so Wednesday I I, I go down to the district attorney's office and I I sit around and he says okay we need you to go we're gonna call I'm gonna call you up on the stand I'm like wait I gotta go on the stand he's like likely you'll be on the stand Unless it kind of gets resolved before that. And he says, just tell us the truth of what happened, what you saw. And we have everything on video. So we saw what you saw. It's like, ah, oh, man, 
This is like three months ago. Thankfully, I didn't have to go to the stand on Wednesday because they decided that it was going. It was a preliminary trial, and it is going to trial. So I'm going to have to go to sit on the stand. But when you give your testimony, when you when you testify, you raise your right hand, you make this oath, saying that you're telling the truth. That this is what I saw. This what happened. They don't care about your your opinions on things they don't care about they just want to know what you actually saw and is there enough evidence to show guilt on this person and john uses this word testify this legal term when he says what we saw what we heard what we touched and he says again what we've seen and we testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the father and was manifested to us he just, he really is trying to make his point. And it turns out that during this period in history, when you were, the, 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 the use of rhetoric in sort of court, you had to make your statement and then you would re-say it like four times. And so as we come to the third verse where we're getting to the verb, what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you. We proclaim to you. That is the verb. So the whole purpose, what he's trying to get at in these first three verses, is that the apostolic witness, including John, they're proclaiming something to us, to all of the recipients. They want them to know something. What is it that they're proclaiming? And we go back to verse 1. It's the word of life. They're proclaiming the word of life. This is what he's testifying about. And he's seen him. He says that three or four times. We have heard. We have groped him. We didn't make this up. This happened. The son who was with the father in eternity past manifested himself to us. And we proclaim to you why. What's it all about? Why is he proclaiming it to us? So that you too may have fellowship with us. This word fellowship, koinonia, I think it, John uses it seven times, not used very often in the New Testament. But in the first seven verses of 1 John, it's used four times. We see it twice in verse 3. We see it down in verse 6, and then again in verse 7. He says, we proclaim the word of life, this eternal life. We proclaim it to you so that you may have fellowship with us. This word fellowship. And I've been stressing about it. Thankfully on Friday night, I had an opportunity to kind of give a test run about this word fellowship. How do we use it? Oh, we're going to watch the Chargers and Raiders play. We're going to have hot dogs. And we're going to fellowship with one another. That's great. Sounds like fun. But this word fellowship means so much more than hot dogs and enjoying time with one another. I've, I've been in the pastoral ministry for, and how long has it been? It's like eight years, I think, now. And I've done a number of weddings. It's always fun watching newly married people kind of get together and then go on their honeymoon, and especially those who have save themselves and their longing like you know especially when you find the ones that their first kiss is on the altar and then 
they come back after a couple weeks of wherever they've gone to. And I say, how, how's it going? How are you doing? Not once have I had a couple come to me and say, you know, we've had great fellowship. Never has that been described as fellowship. But if you were to go back during this time and you bumped into a, a, a newly married couple and you said, How, how's being married? I can't. The, the, the relationship that we have is like no other thing I've ever experienced in life. That the two of us become one. That, that, that it's no longer just about me, but it's about us. And this relationship has intimacy to it that I, that I fail to. I can't, there are not words to express. That from our finances to our how just being able to be with each other all the time. I can't think of a word, but if there's a word that I would use, it would be koinonia. This is how the word was used back then. And now we use it about eating hot dogs with one another. (laughs) This is an intimacy, a closeness that's so close. And John's saying, I want you to have this fellowship. We proclaim this word of life so that you might have koinonia with the Father. Because he goes on to say, fellowship with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. There was an intimacy that John had with the Father through Christ that radically changed him. This Son of Thunder This radical young man that history records him as the apostle of love. That he only saw himself. The commentators get it all wrong. They say, oh, this is the apostle that Jesus loved. Kind of insinuating that he didn't love all the other ones. But when you start looking at, well, the apostle of love, where did that come from? It came from John. John would talk about the other people's names, but when it came to himself, this elitist young man, this one, this young man who thought he was better than everybody else, who wanted to be the right hand of the father in glory. That when him and his brother went up to Jesus that one day and said, Lord, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. And Jesus, with a smile on his face, in my imagination, at least. Okay, well, I'll play along with this. What, what, what exactly do you want me to do for you? Well, when you're in your glory, I want to be on your right or left. <laughs> I want my brother to be on your right. And he says, you guys don't know what you're asking. You will drink of the cup that I'm going to drink. And James was executed. John wanted it to be all about him. But after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, this man was transformed. He no longer wanted it to be about John. He only saw himself, I'm just a guy that Jesus loved. And that from the rest of my life, all I am is some, I'm a nobody that Jesus loved. And that's how I want people to remember me. And as he writes this letter, as he writes his, his gospel, his whole purpose was that those who didn't believe in Jesus might come to believe in him. But now he wants those who have believed to get it, that they would truly have koinonia with the father, this joy that he has. And it's this joy with the father 
that kind of freaks out the world about Christians. I just don't get it. They say about us, why are you so excited to tell people about Jesus? It's just religion. There's all kinds of religions. Oh, it's about this relationship. There's an intimacy with our creator that you can't explain. The, the senior pastor of this church I spoke for at this men's retreat yesterday, after I was done speaking, he got up and he kind of addressed the men that were there. And he said something that, I, he, you know, he said, guys, I don't want us just play in church. He's like, this isn't just about playing church. And that's so true. This, this is that we've gone from darkness that we've gone from being an Adam condemned to life in Christ, that we have koinonia with the Father through Jesus. This is something to get excited about. And he so desperately wants them to enter into this joy. He says, these things we write so that we have another purpose clause. So if the first three verses, if you summarize it, we proclaim this so that you would have this intimate relationship with God. And we don't just say this loosely. We, we saw Jesus. We heard Jesus. We groped Jesus. We walked with him. What we say is true. We are eyewitnesses. And, and he recognizes that as he dies, the eyewitness testimony fades. We have his letters that, that as we read this, we're reading the words of a man who walked with Jesus, who touched Jesus. And he tells us that he's proclaiming to us these things that we might have fellowship with the Father. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. Now, this brings some difficulty. In the manuscripts, as we look at the manuscript evidence, there's hundreds of thousands of New Testament copies around the world in museums. When you look at the Greek New Testament in the strata, the very bottom, with every verse, it, it will give you listings of where what manuscripts have exactly worded. Now, in this one, this R in the New American Standard, some translations say your. And, and, and it's really... And a, a conflict that really has no true implication. It both, both could be true. I can make a case for either one. And so I'm going to make a case for both. John's writing first, let's say it means for our, so that our joy may be made complete. So that John's writing these things. When I look at pastors who I know who really love the Lord and are on fire for him and walk with him. Not all pastors are like that, unfortunately. But when you talk to a pastor and you say, what brings your greatest joy? Or when you get pastors together, what, what we get excited about when a bunch of pastors sort of get together and start sharing, we start sharing about when the gospel starts taking root in people's lives and you see people starting to get excited about Jesus. There's no greater joy for me than to see people get passionate about Jesus and to see the word go out, to take root in your heart, to see you walk closer with Jesus and then to see Jesus just start to transform you. Man, there's nothing better to me. That's why Rick gets choked up at baptisms. I, I dime him out because I get choked up too. 
Like anytime you see this, where people enter into this koinonia, this intimate relationship with their creator, oh, there's nothing more exciting for a parent to see their children. There's no greater joy. Oh, that sounds familiar. Who wrote that? Apostle John. And I think that's in second John. Now, if we want to flip it on the other side of coin, which would probably be just as true. That if you walk with Jesus, if you come into this koinonia with the father through Christ, your joy will be made full. It says made complete, but it's literally that you're, you're topped up with joy. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a, a preacher who died, I think, in the 80s, influenced a lot of people. He tries to explain joy, this word that we don't necessarily have. A, we use it, but we don't have a grasp of it. He says this about joy. There then is a very inadequate description and definition. And yet I suggest to you that we cannot get much further than these elements. Joy is something very deep and profound. Something that affects the whole and entire personality. In other words, it comes to this. There is only one thing that can give true joy. And that is a contemplation of the lord jesus christ he satisfies my mind he satisfies my emotions he satisfies my every desire he and his great salvation include the whole personality and nothing less and in him i am complete joy in other words is the response and the reaction of the soul to a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's beautiful. That, that when you come to know who Christ is. That, that there's, a, there's a contentment. A satisfaction. That, that you're no longer bound by the shifting sands of this world. And things that happen to you. That, that old hymn. The solid rock. That this picture in him. That there's, there's foundation there. That you don't shift all around. If you'll turn with me over to John chapter 15. I'm convinced that one of the the greatest impacts in the Apostle John's life was the Last Supper. Most the other Gospels, they, they record very little about the Lord's Supper. But John, when he writes his Gospel, a quarter of his Gospel is dedicated to the Lord's Supper. Chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. He has 21 chapters. Not that he chaptered them, but that's a, that's a significant portion of his gospel. And as we start reading chapter 15, Jesus is saying at the Lord's Supper, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. It's always kind of bothered me. Did you guys catch that? If you don't bear fruit, he's going to prune you. If you bear fruit, he's going to prune you that you might bear more fruit. You will be pruned by the Lord. You are already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. Abide in me. And I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. 
You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in love just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Verse 11 is the point. This whole Jesus speaking about he's the branch, abide in me, abide in me, abide in me. This, this a picture of abiding in Jesus is going to happen all through the first John. But as you abide in Christ, something happens. Verse 11 says, these things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you. And that your joy may be made full. So as we abide in Jesus, your joy will be made complete, just as 1 John says. And if you're a pastor, if you're the Apostle John and you're writing these things and then you see the recipients abide in Christ, certainly his joy was going to be made full. So you could really make a case either way. And as we look at this opening section, It's, it's a profound letter that's going to require us to think. I would encourage you to read. It's only five chapters. Read it over and over and over again. I'm like super convicted by Anna, my wife. She said, oh, Grace and I are going to work on like memorizing a little bit of it. And I like walk out to the living room and the whole first chapter of First John is like on the wall. And they've been like memorizing a whole chapter. And I know that my six-year-old is going to have this memorized and I'm going to be like fumbling through it and they're teasing me and they're like going, dad, tell us what it says. And I'm like trying. I'm like, oh, all my excuses. Well, I've been reading in the Greek all week, so it's kind of out of order. And I'm like, you know, trying to justify it. But I guarantee you, as you put the word into you and it doesn't just come on Sundays by me, it's you digging and praying and thinking about it. If we take anything home today, Remember that the only reason that John is proclaiming this message is that you would have koinonia with the Father. He wants you to have this intimate relationship that's like no other. That when the Bible starts speaking of this relationship, the closest relationship that in human terms that they can understand is a satisfying marriage. That's the closest thing. Which then is convicting about our marriages. <laughs> That's a whole nother story. The God, John wants us to have this koinonia. And as we enter into this relationship with the Father through Christ, there's a joy and a satisfaction that is like no other. And Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the testimony of not only the Apostle John, but all of the others, Lord. To think of their standing firm in the truth of who Christ was, 
as they faced their execution, as Peter faced the cross and he told them that he was unworthy to die in the manner that his Lord died and was executed upside down on the cross. As I look at this Pastor Yusuf, Lord, and I ran standing firm, facing the death penalty, Lord, refusing to recant. There's something there. There's a koinonia, a fellowship, Lord, that, that a, a relationship that can't be explained through words. And Father, I want this. Lord, help us to, 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 to do whatever we have to do, Lord. Maybe it's just coming to faith in Christ. But Lord, for us who believe, Lord, I pray that you would help us to, to abide in Christ, Lord, that we would walk, that we would know your joy. Father, we love you. We're thankful for the work that you're doing in our midst. And we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen.